Welcome back into the Original Gangsters podcast. I am your host, Scott Bernstein, along with my partner in crime, the doctor, Jimmy Bucciolato. Buongiorno. <laughs> Buongiorno, paisani. We have a very, very, very special guest uh, who's going to come in kind of as a third host. He is a rising for, for this episode. And then hopefully for future episodes, he can drop in as he chooses. He is a true rising star in the community, in the media right now, in terms of true crime journalism and true crime reporting and, and storytelling, focuses a lot on history. And what's, what's so great about him, really, is his new media age approach. Um, he isn't writing articles. He isn't doing documentaries. He's doing most of his work on social media. And he's doing an amazing job building a following. He already kind of had a following in the sports gambling sector of, of the Internet, uh, known for, for doing picks and, and, and talking gambling uh, through a lot of the online stuff that's connected to Barstool. Uh, he was employed at Barstool for a while and uh, already has a kind of a name brand in that world and is starting to really build a name brand in this world. We're lucky to have him for this episode, Jeff Nadu from The Sit Down. Please uh, welcome him in and thank you for joining us, buddy. Jimmy and Scott, good to talk to you. Scott, you know, I'm a fan of your guys' work. I, I want to tell you something really quick coming into this. The interview you did with Richie Cantarello was terrific. I was a big fan of that. Uh, Richie's a really interesting guy, obviously with the connections to Joe Messino and and, and just all the stuff you do, really good. Uh, I, I love the shows, and I'm happy to talk to you guys. Thank you for the kind words. Oh, well, thanks for joining us. And uh, this is going to be like kind of a hodgepodge and a little bit of like a, a rapid fire session where we touch on a bunch of different topics that are uh, kind of coursing through the veins of uh, American organized crime right now. And I'm interested to get Jeff's take on some stuff, but let's just first start with uh, just a little bit of background on you, Jeff, and, and, you know, your, your desire to kind of throw your hat in the ring. And, and it, it's only been, it's been what, six months, uh, if not, less than six months and you're you're really starting to craft a following um with your with your sit down podcast and and social media uh so just kind of tell us uh, about the evolution yeah so i kind of got started in the sports betting business way back in 2009 i've kind of been on twitter since kind of the the beginning of it frankly and i kind of developed a following through that um, you know, I've, as you said, been connected with certain companies and I've really kind of made my name through the, the sports betting world, particularly college basketball, college football, the NFL, um, really kind of going to media through a different lens as opposed to just writing, but doing video and audio content. I've worked for different companies and have kind of been able to produce that. And, um, you know, I, I think I, I've always, you know, I've always loved reading books and, and, and always been fascinated by mob culture, drug gang culture. Uh, really just not necessarily true crime, but more organized crime. And, you know, I kind of told myself I had a following and I always feel like you should use your following and and, and try to go other ways. I guess I got some point just consumed with being only sports. And, you know, I think true passion sometimes your hobbies. And, you know, I've always enjoyed, you know, movies and TV, but I've also enjoyed just history and reading and understanding things. So I said, you know what, I'm going to give it a shot. I have a following. I think this is something that I can do. And um, I just kind of jumped into it. We're, you know, as of today, 16 episodes in and uh, the show's doing super well. You know, it's about two and a half months old. And, uh, you know, we really kind of focus on the history aspect. You know, occasionally there's some news that you'll brush up on, but um, we're really kind of hitting the news. You know, we're talking about everything from, you know, the inception till, 
you know, basically the early 2000s. Um, not that we don't get into current stuff, but it's more or less a history thing um, and just kind of offering a compelling look into people and trying to maybe provide some info that you didn't know uh, and, uh, you know, just kind of have a, a, a discussion on it. I, I think uh, a lot of um, the the people that like our podcast also listen to your podcast and, you know, vice versa. And so I, I know, like, some people on social media have asked for um, – this kind of conversation where all three of us are talking. And so the way I like to think of it, I don't know about you, Jeff, but Bernie and I are big uh, old school wrestling fans. And this is like the mega powers and the, <laughs> and the macho man and Hulk Hogan. Like, I, I think I up. like thinking of it more like the four horsemen, but <laughs> there's, the four, there's oh, yeah, three yeah. of us. Though. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, we'll we could add for- Seth Ferrante or Christian Cipollini and a, <laughs> yeah. lo- a lot of us new, new G's. Yeah. We, we talk about a lot of OGs, but we're new G's. Yeah. And, that's right. Uh, but we need guys like uh, Jeff to really show us the way because he, you know, he's a little, uh, we were just talking before we jumped on air. He's a, about a generation uh, behind us in terms of when we grew up. And uh, I am like a dinosaur when it comes to, you know, the new age media. And I, I need to get on my P's and Q's. And when I see guys like Jeff just, you know, killing it out there, just slaying the competition and doing it from, like he said, this new lens, um, it's not only inspiring, but it, it tells me that, you know, you know, it, it keeps me, it keeps me on my toes and tells me that I, you know, I need to be moving in that same direction. And if we could, you know, join forces and, and find a nexus between our brands, which like you said, I think there is just a natural dovetailing. Uh, I'm sure there are a lot of people that listen to both or consume both, but I'm sure there are a lot of people that, that consume Jeff and don't know about us or, or consume OG podcasts and don't know about the sit down. And this is a great opportunity to kind of cross pollinate. Well, you know, I, um, and, and I've told you this guy, you know, we talk pretty frequently, you know, I, I've, I've, I've read the gangster report for a long time. You know, I read mafia Prince. I, I, I've consumed, you know, a lot of the white boy Rick stuff I've read, you know, Al profit. I've read all this stuff out in Detroit. Um, you know, I think for me, you know, speaking to someone like you is, uh, you know, I think so great for me because, you know, obviously I, I've always had a pretty good ability to gain followers and, and to kind of create a brand and try to get it somewhere where it can get in front of a lot of people. But, you know, you have, I think the connections that maybe necessarily I don't have. And I think, as you say, cross pollinate is huge. Um, you know, I, I remember when I, I first thought of doing this is when I worked at Barstool. And I remember there was an individual that I went to at the company. And as you know, and I'm, I'm not going to deflect who it is, but I have a connection to someone pretty important. And Scott, you know who that is. And I, 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 I bended the idea to him about um, you know, doing a, just an interview with somebody. And, and that's where kind of this idea came from. And I just know that, as you know, there, there just are so few voices probably in this realm. And I think we are well aware of how interesting, compelling the mob and the American mob is to the kind of the, the, the you know, culture in America, whether it's film or, or real life. And, you know, telling the stories is important. And I think that's where a lot of this came from. And the fact that I can talk to you guys is pretty great because, uh, you know, I've been kind of following you for a while. I've always said, you know, you and, you know, people like George, uh, Anastasia in, in my area and, you know, even, even Dave, you know, Schrottweiser, who, you know, has his, his, his stuff on, on TV and stuff, you know, just all those guys have been kind of integral in, in reading the books, including you guys. Yeah, I mean, I started, you know, reading George when I was, uh, we're talking about yeah. George Anastasia, uh, who's the, the authority on, on Philadelphia mob affairs dating back, you know, 30 years and, and has written a bunch of outstanding books and does a, a amazing job of kind of uh, boots on the ground reporting. Uh, I, you know, I fell in love with the genre from reading George, you know, I didn't have 
guys in Detroit, really, that I looked up to that wrote organized crime. In fact, I wasn't really aware of it um, when I was a teenager or into my early 20s. I mean, I was aware of it in the sense that, like, I liked Goodfellas and Casino. Um, and I had it in my family, but it wasn't something that I paid much attention to. I got into law school and I started working a, uh, an internship where I was actually working uh, mob cases as an intern with the Illinois Attorney General's office. And it made me want to just consume anything I can get my hands on it. And at that time, I remember going to the bookstore and um, I'm going <laughs> to segue us into what we're going to start talking about. Um, I remember seeing on the shelves uh, The Last Gangster, which was uh, George Anastasia's book that came out, I believe, in 2003. I was actually just going to bring that up. That's the first book. I, I It was that and the Goodfellas tapes yep. were the two first books that I read. Yep, I read those back-to-back. Goodfellas tape, is, that's a really good book. Goodfellas tapes was the one that was the one that he put out right before right. Last Gangster. Right. Um, and then people that know George, he wrote the Bible on the 1980s. Philly era, blood uh, and honor, and honor yeah. um, which was really laid the foundation for the, you know, the, the unbelievable career that he, that he's uh, built for himself. But uh, at that time I hadn't read blood and honor. I read last gangster first. Then I read uh, Goodfellow tapes. Then I read blood and honor. And I think it was over a, a, a spring or a summer. And I, I just, I fell in love with it. I called George up on the phone. I just cold called him at his desk and was like, I want to do what you do. Um, and I was lucky enough, uh, to have him, you know, take a, at least a, a, a modicum of interest in me and has helped me just a ton. Uh, I'm, I'm being facetious when I say a modicum, uh, he's, uh, uh, he's just, he's been, he's my, he's my pedrone when it comes to reporting. If also for people that are interested, um, shout out to, uh. The sky. This whole episode so far has been a love affair. We have to. Yeah, <laughs> we're gonna say. I'm gonna. Say, I'm gonna segue in a second. <laughs> but uh, shout out to Scott. Uh, check out his books: um, Motor City Mafia, Mafia Prince, um, the True Crime, Detroit True Crime Chronicles, which I helped him on a little bit. Family affair. Family affair. Because um, I get the sense from like social media, like you know, you were talking about this like new age media. I get the sense from social media, a lot of people that like our podcast. And and follow us on on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. They, especially they don't maybe know me as well, but they know they know Scott as a name out there in terms of the true crime community. But I'm not sure they even have read your books yet. Yeah, Be- because like their, their point of departure is like YouTube and, and the documentaries and the podcast. And so um, you know don't don't miss out because Scott's books are really good. Um, you, you humble me. I will say one thing that, and I also really always, and, and I don't want to, you know, you guys mentioned Love Fest. One thing I do also <laughs> want to say that I try to pattern also is one thing that I love about Scott is that, and I, and I noticed in the genre, you know, pe- people like George did it. He was probably the first person I saw do it. He was someone that kind of knew that he had kind of a foothold on probably the Italian mafia. And he, he kind of started to, to jump into, you know, drug lords and drug traffickers. And that's one thing that, I particularly enjoy talking about. So whether it's, you know, Frank Matthews or the black mafia in Philadelphia or, or Kabani Savage, or, or I know you, as you talk about a uh, big Meech and BMF, like that's something that I think also is part of, you know, American culture and, and, and history. So, you know, kind of evolving everything. And that's one thing I love about Scott and George, and I've almost kind of patterned what, what we're doing, you know, in a way off that. That's one thing that when Scott and I first, uh, conceptualize this uh podcast 
and uh, back then Roberto was was part of that too. Um, we we wanted to we we specifically said we don't want this to just be about the Italian mafia. A, a lot of episodes yeah. will be about the Italian mafia, of course. That's sort of like the bread and butter. But Scott and I were always on the same page that. We want to talk about cartels. We want to talk about outlaw motorcycle clubs. We want to talk about African-American organized crime and also movies and music and, and other things. And so I think, um, you know, that, that we've, we've been doing that and it seems like people are responding. So, but I, I mean, I agree with Jeff, the, the idea of like, um, you don't have to limit yourself to one corner of this universe. Be as versatile as possible in anything you do, you know, be a Renaissance, yeah. be a Renaissance man. Um, whether it's in your space or in, in multiple spaces, uh, you know, it, it, in this world, if I've learned anything, it's a numbers game. Like the more shots you put up, the the more opportunities you're going to have for, for, uh, you know, playing Steph Curry, uh, split splash from downtown. Um, so, uh, you know, again, segueing a little bit, Jeff is from Philadelphia, uh, Philadelphia, New Jersey area. And Mafia Prince, which is probably my most popular book, uh, most well-known book, uh, was about the Philadelphia mob of the 80s that uh, George Anastasia had chronicled in, in Blood and Honor 20 years before. And I came in and was able to, you know, with, with the blessing of both George and uh, Philip Leonetti, uh, who allowed me to come in and, and write his, his autobiography, um, we kind of told it. George told it from kind of a reporter's a uh, uh, point of view with a little help from a, uh, a Philadelphia mob uh, soldier capo, uh, Nikki Crow Caramondi. Uh, and then we told it from Crazy Phil Leonetti's perspective. Crazy Phil was the mafia prince. He was the underboss of the Philadelphia mafia at a very young age because he was the uh, nephew and surrogate son of the maniacal Philadelphia godfather, uh, Nicodemo Little Nicky Scarfo. Um, in fact, the first, you know, the the working title of the book before Mafia Prince was The Devil's Protege. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, I want to jump in to, you know, what we talked about, kind of doing a rapid fire, uh, going around the horn with some uh, current and some historical mob news that, that it's been making the, the rounds uh, over the last couple of weeks. And let's start in your neck of the woods in Philadelphia. Uh, we don't have to go too deep into it because uh, there's been a lot of uh, uh, talk uh, already that you can consume. We've talked about George and uh, Anastasia and Dave Schwartz-Weiser. They do a, a great job on their uh, podcast and, and video um, video platforms on YouTube. Uh, but uh, this week is the 20-year anniversary of the very sensationalized, high-profile 2001 uh, Philadelphia uh, mafia murder and racketeering trial, uh, headlined by the number one defendant in that case, uh, Skinny Joey Merlino, who, you know, in my, you know, for, for my money is the most compelling uh, organized crime figure uh, at least when it came, when it comes to the Italians in America, the last 20, 25 years. Um, and he's only 59 years old. Uh, he is, you know, the definition of just 21st century mafia Don allegedly. Uh, and, uh, he ended up being convicted out of racketeering, uh, in a three month trial that lasted from the spring into the uh, summer months of 2001 and was just heavily covered and scrutinized by, by both local and national press, uh, with Joey uh, being the, the lead defendant and his former mentor in the mafia, uh, Ralph Natale, who had been 
uh, the boss before Joey, uh, became the first city mafia Don in American history to take the stand. And uh, it was just, there was a lot of hype. Uh, Joey was convicted. Joey and, and, and six or seven co-defendants were convicted on the racketeering counts, but they were all acquitted on the murder counts, which allowed them to you know, do relatively uh, short prison sentences. And I, and I use the term relative because they were looking at life sentences and they all ended up doing uh, anywhere between six and 12 years. So uh, I guess I'm just, you know, I wrote a little bit about, uh, about it on Gangster Report this week, a little bit of a retrospective. Um, you were obviously a, a younger cat at that point because I was a young cat at that point. I was uh, in, in law school at that, that time. Um, and... I was kind of unaware of what was going on. I didn't kind of catch on to what was going on in Philly till a year or two later when that that book came out. So, uh, Manuel, just come give me your thoughts uh, for people that maybe don't know the Philly scene as well as people from from your uh, you know from where you are from. Uh, you know, kind of talk about that. You know, twenty years ago and. The Philadelphia mob was kind of back in the headlines, and it was just this. Uh, you know, the way I phrased it. Uh, in, in my writing that, you know, before things were going viral on social media, this trial went viral. It's funny, Scott, you bring this up because I remember one of the first couple of things I've ever seen regarding the mob. I was 10, 11 years old. I remember Sopranos came out in 1999. I just sit outside my mother and father's bedroom and watch the show. They wouldn't let me watch it, but I would watch it. And then I remember always turning on the TV. And I remember they actually played this stuff still on TV around here of just news clips of of Joey walking in the Flyers games. And I remember there was a, a thing involving Joey and Eric Lindros many years ago. And, you know, I, I think, you know, you call him, I think you said one of the most compelling people over the last 20 years, probably in the mob and, uh, or allegedly in the mob. I agree. I, I've always found Joey to be incredibly interesting. Um, but I think the thing you said that was obviously very important and it's still important today because, you know, the, the FBI and the feds have never been able to truly, uh, get to him is mm-hmm. the, the murder aspect. There was no murders involved in that uh, indictment. You know, everyone involved is, is on the street uh, in, in some form or fashion at this point, outside of maybe one or two. And, and a lot of those guys are still in shorter sentences. So, you know, I, I Joey in this town's always been an enigma. I, I think people have always, whether you're, you're from, you know, uh, an African-American neighborhood or, or whatever neighborhood or white neighborhood, wherever, you know who Joey Molino is. He was always, as George Anastasia would say, the John Gotti of Passionate Avenue. And he was always a guy that, you know, was always out there. You know, anyone in South Philly or has any sort of connection to South Philly saw him out when they were younger or they saw him on TV. He was always out there. And he really was outside of Capone and Gotti, really the only guy that did that. But when you look at Philadelphia as a whole, when you look at pretty much after Bruno, so whether it was John Stanfa, Nicky Scarfo, Joey Molino, all these guys, we're very much out there in the public. John Stanfa, I, I saw him on TV a lot. I mean, he's always saying wild things on TV and, and, and you know, threatening people and, and all sorts of stuff. They've always had this like kind of out there um, kind of aura. And, you know, Joey's one for the ages, man. He's always had some interesting comments. You know, if you remember one of his, one of his best comments ever was when, they put a hit out on him and he said, give me the 500,000 and I'll kill myself. I was going to tee that up for you. I'm glad you, you hit it. <laughs> yeah. It's one of the great, uh, it's one of the great things ever that he's, that he said. And, you know, he's a guy that is just always, but you know, whenever you see Joey, I've, I've always said, whenever I see him on TV or, or, or wherever, I, I always get a chuckle, just that little smirk that he has and just, 
he, he's a fascinating individual. He, he was always willing to speak. It's funny. One final thing I'll say on him is I think it was 98, 99, one of those times. And I remember we would, we would go to six of games, fire games back then. And I remember on the radio one time, Howard Eskin, who's a, a as you, you know, Howard Eskin, mm-hmm. a, a big time sports radio guy here. I remember one time Joey called in and talked to Howard on air about the, the Eric Lindros stuff. And it was, it's still on the internet today. You can find it. it it's one of the great sound bites ever. Joey's sitting there defending that he doesn't know Lindros. There's no connection uh, between him and why he was sitting in Joey's or uh, in Lindros' seat at a Flyers game. When I was uh, around this time, not to get too autobiographical here, but I used to uh, visit South Jersey quite often. I, I had family yeah. there, still do. And um, I, I noticed right away the contrast. And, and I, I wasn't, I didn't know as much as I know now, but I, I probably was a little bit more familiar with this stuff than, than, than Bernie was at, at that point. But um, I, I noticed right away the, the contrast with, with Detroit because, I mean, we had Tony Giacalone here who he was, he was visible, but he wasn't out there like Joey. Like if you didn't know, if right. you weren't part of Tony's oh, like he orbit. Snar- <laughs> when, the, when the cameras came, yeah. he would snarl he would at snarl, them. Right, right. It was different. And I, you know, the, uh, you want to talk about great, uh, we'll go tit for tat on quotes. <laughs> One of my favorite Tony Jack quotes is when he's coming out of uh, the courtroom after the arraignment or after the indictment for uh, game tax, which was the big uh, Detroit mob case from the nineties. Uh, someone puts a microphone in face and says, uh, are are you the uh, mob boss of Detroit? He says, your mother is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. So, yeah, it was, I, I picked up on that right away that, that uh, the, the guys in Philly were, were more visible in terms of media, but also like, like Jeff was saying, like out on the street, like, whereas like the, the Detroit guys, if you weren't part of that, like orbit, Joey was inviting Joey was inviting cameras into right. <laughs> private mob parties, you know, where he was giving away turkeys to uh, Joey, right. Joey. And I'll, I'll I'll say this till I'm blue in the face. There's no more classic quotes to the media than Joey. I don't, I, not even Gotti. I mean, if we really talk about John Gotti, he was never very, he was never interviewed over the phone by a sports radio right. guy. Like he, you know, Joey Molino has had more quotes directly. I, I remember uh, back in, I think it was, he got jammed up in a in um in a case uh, involving uh, another individual he was meeting with uh, in 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 court here in Philadelphia. And I remember one day he's going into the courtroom and you know he's got a couple guys with him and he comes walking out and a, a, a reporter says to him, uh, "U.S. Attorney says you're still an active member of the mob." And he goes, the "Guy's mental." <laughs> just out of nowhere and she goes he's mental and he it's just a classic he just has the quickest wit quickest wit of any wise guy yeah uh of at it's least hilarious. the last half century the, the other thing that i yeah. knew right away that was different though was you know i first started going to south jersey i mean there was a war going on guys were getting yeah. clipped in public and there were attempted clip and yeah. whereas like with Detroit, I mean, guys just disappear in Detroit. All, they all, weren't, yeah. they weren't all you need to know about Joey execution. is that Joey and his crew of boyhood pals, a lot of them are, are still around and make up his inner circle. These guys had the balls at the age of 29, 30 years old in an era where, you know, mob families across the country were being run by guys in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. And these guys were turning 30, and they were like, we ain't waiting we're, we're coming after our piece of the pie right now. And like it, you know, 
I, I'm not pa- passing judgment. You know, crime is wrong. Violence is wrong. You know, racketeering is wrong. But l- looking at it from, you know, uh, you know, a research perspective or historical perspective, you know, to have that type of constitution, that that type of chutzpah, as we say in the Jewish community, to, you know, go after uh, a mob family, go after t- taking over an entire city and then succeeding. Uh, he, you know, by the time he was 33 years old, uh, he was running the city of Philadelphia. So, and that's the thing, Scott, that no one will ever understand about Philly. And they have one thing that I don't think a lot of guys, there, there occasionally you'll find people that were boyhood pals or whatever, but the, 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 the people in Philly, particularly his crew, they're from Jackson street. Okay. They grew up together. They're airtight. They're, they're, they're like family, right? So you're never going to have dissension. You're never going to have any of that. And that's what I think it's just, you see so many situations here that are so rare and, you know, in Philadelphia, particularly, you know, everyone knows everyone in that world. So, you know, when you looked at, you know, Salvi Testa, obviously his father was a boss and, you know, Salvi knew, you know, Joey's sister and like, everybody knew everybody. And it's all a weird kind of connection. The last thing I'll say on Joey, his best quote, probably outside of the, the, the 500 K quote, when he got 14 years, I remember he said something like, uh, he, he says, like, that's not bad. It's better than a death penalty. <laughs> it reminds me of uh, when I was the first time I sat with Johnny Curry, and we're going to get into White Boy Rick in a second, um, the the pretty infamous East Side Detroit uh, drug kingpin from the from the 80s. And I sat down with him, and I said, uh, Johnny, how many years did you end up doing? He said, oh, I did 13 years, and you know, it really wasn't that bad. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty good. And I was like, just the way he said it was like, I have 13 years. I'm like, oh, I got only a dozen years of your life. You know, you just missed all the 90s. Like Bill Clinton, he doesn't know who Bill Clinton is. He wasn't there for any of Bill Clinton's uh, presidency. But, um, but you know, playing on to your point of of Joey and his friends, and we'll we'll move off this in a second, you know, that crew of guys that are all now in their late 50s, uh, approaching, approaching 60, uh, they've got a good 20 years left. Um, you know, these guys, the oath to La Cosa Nostra really doesn't mean anything to them. The the oath that they took to each other in the sandbox is what, is what's, you know, they're bound by blood in in that regard. And it has nothing to do with the blood that, uh, they pricked their fingers uh, to be inducted into the uh, Bruno Scarfo crime family. Uh, their loyalty is to each other. And that's why, you know, in an era where everybody flips on each other, um, in a family that before this group um, had a number of eras where they were torn apart by turncoats um, and treachery and friends killing best friends. You mentioned Salvi Testa. Um, although uh, Joe Punge didn't want to have to kill Sally, uh, Salvi Testa, uh, he was given the contract and he had to carry it out. Um, and that's the way things went in the Philadelphia Mafia. This is the polar opposite of that. These guys uh, have each other's back to a de- to a degree that really doesn't exist anymore uh, in the modern OC landscape. Uh, and that 20 years ago, uh, they all really um, dodged a huge bullet because they uh, could have easily all been convicted of, of murder. I mean, you had a guy in a, uh, a sitting mafia boss that was supposed to have known the scorecard um, and Ralph Natale get up on the stand and... Uh, 
after Eddie Jacobs had his way with him on cross, and Eddie Jacobs is the legendary criminal defense attorney in Philadelphia. He's Joey's mouthpiece, and, and he sliced and diced him. Uh, and by the end of his testimony, no, nobody believed a word he said. And Joey and his whole crew ended up walking from those murder counts. So, you know, they didn't go to prison for the rest of their lives. They all came out uh, in in their 50s. And uh, I guess, you know, the, the final chapter or final chapters uh, are, are still left to be written. The one thing I will say before we move on is that uh, one member of that 2001 case, uh, handsome Stevie Mazzone, who's one of Joey's best friends, and uh, at the time of the bust uh, in the 2001 case, he was the underboss. I think he's been alleged to have played various other administrative roles, um, is facing another racketeering case right now from November of 2020. And uh, we should see where that goes. But there was a uh, a made guy in the Philly f- uh, family, Anthony Persiano, who uh, became a, a, a confidential informant and was recording uh, his, his, uh, conversations, uh, within the, the Philly gangland, uh, sphere. And, uh, one of, uh, some of those conversations were, were, uh, induction ceremonies. And, and Steve Mazzone was actually caught, uh, on those tapes giving what could be categorized as kind of like, um, uh, you know, uh, pep talks to, to the new, uh, to the new initiates. So it'll be interesting to see how he deals with that because, uh, um, as my as my uh, grand colleague George Anastasia says, uh, it's hard to cross examine a tape. It very much is. And one thing I'll say about the current investigation, um, obviously a- another pretty weak case. If we can be real honest, I, look again, there are some drugs involved. Which, you know, look, I, I guess I'll say this, and and I, this is something a rabbit trail that I, I don't really want to go down, just because we all know. Let's that- be clear too, Jeff, that. Joey Merlino's name is not in this case. Correct. He's not been charged. Uh, but but is, the truth yeah. of the matter is, Scott, that in in Kensington, Philadelphia, uh, an open-air drug market, there are drug corners that are pulling in $400,000 a week. Think about that. Yep. We're worried about this nonsense. This, yeah, this gambling and stuff. Yeah, this stuff that you can go two blocks south and they're doing legally at a casino. I mean, it, it's pathetic, it's disgusting, and it's a waste of time. This will be really the last thing I say. We've said this like five times, but uh, yeah. in terms of the case against Stevie Mazzone, I agree. It is flimsy. Even the tapes they have, uh, he's not saying anything necessarily incriminating. It's not illegal to be a member of a secret society. Um He's talking in generalities. Yes, you can connect the dots yourself and and know that he's telling people to go, quote unquote, plant a flag for the crime family. But nonetheless, I, I don't know if there's anything on those tapes that necessarily uh, implicates him in crime or in, a, in, in organized crime. But again, as we l- uh, jump off this, I, I will say the other big defendant in the case, uh, Dominic Grande, uh, Baby Dom, uh, younger than uh, me and Jimmy, I think a little bit older than you, Jeff. Uh, he's about 40, 41 years old, uh, who a lot of people say is the heir apparent, uh, the guy that's kind of being groomed to to be the future of this crime family. He's involved in this case, and I don't know, I wouldn't say the case against him is flimsy. The tape recordings they have, uh, 
sound like he's talking about drugs and and tributes, and I, I think he's going to probably I, – I think Stevie can squeeze out of this, and probably if he has to do any time, we'll, we'll end up only having to do a year or two. But I think uh, Dom Grani's going to have to do a 10-piece at least. Yeah, we're going to see. Uh, it's very interesting. Um, I, I think, you know, and, and I've always said it, it's, it's funny. In, in, in South Philadelphia still, I mean, you, you got individuals that are, you know, two to five years away from dying. I'm talking about 70, 80 years old. They're still being surveilled by the FBI. Yeah, Chicky Changalini. There's probably an entire yeah, uh, FBI unit that that follows Chicky Changalini to Stogie Joe's every morning. He sits there with the paper. Uh, he, he's, you know, other than being the fact that he is a, you know, a true OG of the Philly crime family, and at one point was a, a major power, you know, in in the '70s and '80s. But as you said, this guy is 85 years old right now. Uh, any role he plays is incredibly minimal. Um, if it's anything, it's, you know, giving someone advice here or there, but you know, the fact that the, the feds would spend money on, you know, a surveillance unit that I know exists, uh, that follows around, uh, uh, Chicky Changalini, it, just, it, it seems like a waste of So uh, what, what let me ask you too, what's going on institutionally with the FBI in Philadelphia? Because. That's exceptional. I mean, in in New York, they don't follow the yeah, Italians. Yeah, well, like this. that's because of Joey. They have such a. Yeah. I mean, to them, he's Al Capone or John Gotti. Yeah, because in Chicago, I mean, God, they don't do this. Detroit, New York, no, the FBI does they, not. They, were, they, but, they keep tabs look, on the Italians, but they don't. They're not up their ass like they are in Philly. And you look at particularly this exact. Uh, it's fascinating. You talk about New York. I mean, Peter Tuccio, who you know, Scott. Yeah. Um, Peter Tuccio is not a mobster. He was connected. He's a young guy. He was moving around with people. He contacted Joey on the internet, started driving him around a little bit, was seen at his trial one time, and he was involved a few years ago in an arson case. Now, anyone that knows anything about the federal prison system knows that 10 years is a ridiculously long sentence for an individual that commits a faulty arson. It wasn't an arson. He lit a car on fire. Uh, That kid got 10 years. Yep. If you think it has anything to do with anything other than Joey Merlino, I think you're crazy. Proximity to Joey. They thought that they could yeah. they could scare they him. They just and, don't – yeah, they don't like him. So it's that simple. No, and, and it becomes very, very personal for – frankly, for work that shouldn't be personal. But, you know, people are human, and I can, you know, speak with authority uh, from talking to a lot of these guys. Uh, the, the level of um, vitriol or – um, the, the, the heated nature of their feelings. The only thing that I can compare that to in, in my reporting is the way that the FBI in Detroit hunts the killers of Jimmy Hoffa, where it's like, it's 45 years later and these guys are, are still chomping at the bit. Um, and, and Joey, this is more real time because there's a more of a moving target. And it's just like, it's palpable when you talk to these guys on the phone or you interact with them. The, they have a personal vendetta against Joey. Whether, again, I'm not going to pass judgment on it. Like, there's some people that say Joey is a murderer. Uh, the, the government says that. You know, he's beaten those charges. He's never been found guilty of murder in a trial or uh, in, in a jury trial. Uh, any charges of, of violence um, against him, he has beaten. So, you know. But it's a real anomaly because at the macro level, the last 20 years, national policy has been reduce resources for organized crime and devote them to counterterrorism. And to the extent that you are going to investigate organized crime, it's going to be the cartels. Yeah. 
So, I mean, it, it's really an and anomaly it, and it makes what's going it, on it, in Yeah, and it makes it even more impressive that we, we made the uh, uh, analogy to Capone and Gotti before. Look at the difference in the length of their reigns. Gotti's reign was five years, pretty much. Yeah. And then he was done. Yeah. Capone's reign was seven, eight years. Joey is going on 30. <laughs> and he's only 58. And he's only spent about, you know, 12 years in prison. I mean, for a lot of people, that that would be a, a big chunk of change. But for someone for like Joey, when it's all said and done, 12 years of prison ain't that bad. Um, it's, it's, that's an anomaly. So let's uh, let's jump into uh, White Boy Rick for a second. Um, I'm interested to get uh, an outsider's perspective. In, in terms of an outsider, I mean someone who's not from Detroit. Uh, and I know Jeff uh, has has followed the case and, um, and and has been pretty interested in in what's been going on with 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 Rick and and his plight and just the surreal nature of his case. Um, you know. Uh, he is back in the headlines this week. Uh, him and his attorneys have filed a $100 million civil lawsuit against City of Detroit, um, U.S. District uh, Attorney uh, of Eastern Michigan, uh, as well as DPD, FBI, and DEA uh, for the fact that they recruited him out of eighth grade to become a mole in the Detroit drug world. He worked on behalf of a federal drug task force um, for two years and three or four months uh, between the years of 1984 and 1986, uh, uh, between the ages of 14 and 16, and collected uh, about $50,000 for his time and was encouraged to drop out of high school, ended up uh, avoiding or surviving an assassination attempt. Um, And then when the task force got all the information from him that they needed to make a bust against Johnny Curry, who was this east side a uh, dope kingpin that that Rick had been sent undercover to to get close to, and Rick had kind of become his right hand man. Um, and they took Johnny Curry and his whole organization down in April 1987 uh, with help of Rick. And then, literally within weeks, he he had uh, wore out his welcome. He had, they had sucked him dry for information. There was nothing left for them to get out of him, so they arrested him uh, on a routine traffic stop. Uh, they caught him with eight kilos of cocaine, and he was sent to prison for the rest of his life. Um, at that time of the traffic stop, he was only 17 years old. And uh, it was a real you know, modern-day tragedy um, that I, um, I'm proud to say that I, I helped right that societal wrong with some of my reporting. And uh, that was really where I made my bones as a reporter. Um, that was you know, my baby. I, I was the reporter that was able to um, tell the world that, White Boy Rick was actually a a, a, a creation, uh, and and was a creation of the U.S. government, and was 100% bought and paid for by Uncle Sam. Uh, was not the 16 year old white teenage drug dealer that you saw on your television sets back in the 1980s. Anyway, finally uh, walked free last year after 33 years behind bars, and uh, is now suing the city of Detroit and the federal government for basically prostituting him as a, as an adolescent. Um, Jeff, give me your, uh, give me your thoughts. Yeah. You know, I think, and I've talked about this before. I think it's, you know, look, did Rick, where she do things that, uh, he shouldn't have done. Yeah. Um, should he have spent 33 years in prison? No, I think it's one of the biggest miscarriage miscarriages of justice really ever. Uh, it's pathetic. Um, and this is some of the really draconian, 
drug statutes that this country has created. Um, we, we have to understand that the drug war since its inception has become and, and really was always a war on the poor, right? You know, it, it, it targets people that have no real way to create a life for themselves because, as you know, in Detroit, as I know in Philadelphia, as, as really anyone that lives in the city knows, Baltimore, St. Louis, wherever, um, industry has left those cities. And in areas where industry really saved communities, uh, that's all gone. And as the great David Simon says, um, the only thing that's still available as a form of capitalism in those neighborhoods like East Detroit is the drug trade. Rick Worshey had really no other way to go, as he and so many other people do. They get into the drug trade, the government uses them for anything that they're worth, and then throws them out on the street. Rick Worshey almost died. Remember that. Rick, as you know, was shot by uh, someone that, again, we don't exactly know who. Maybe you do. No, but, yeah, we know, we know who know, shot him, but Johnny Curry has always – Denied that, sending yeah, the shooter, and I and I again I I uh, respect Johnny Curry. I have uh, he's been very kind to to me and my research, and I've been on panels with him where, when uh, that comes up, and he's adamant that uh, my reporting is wrong, and that my reporting, and I'll stand by my reporting that uh, Johnny Slim Walker, uh, who was a member of the Curry crew. I don't believe that he just shot Rick on his own. I believe he was told to to shoot Rick, but nonetheless, Johnny Curry uh, denies it. So we'll leave it at that. The thing about Rick is, and again, this happens so much. And I I, I give him the ultimate respect for actually putting this lawsuit into motion. And look, he's going to get something out of this and he should, Uh, he spent way too many years in prison. uh, So many wasteful years, so many important years in anyone's life. Uh, He didn't get to see his kids grow up. He didn't get to see, you know, his kids get married. I'm sure family members have died when when he was in prison. Uh, But again, this is the problem with the pathetic draconian laws that people like Bill Clinton and other politicians, this is not a Democrat Republican problem. This is a, generational United States problem. We put too many people in prison for nonsense. uh, And if you do not cooperate, you are going to spend time in prison. Tim Allen is a prime example, as you know. Well, Jeff, just so you know, and I I think we're both going here, we're both going in the same direction. Tim Allen and white boy Rick were convicted under the exact same same law. law. Right. The lifer law, as you know. Right. The state lifer law, where and the only reason Tim Allen ended up becoming Tim the Toolman in the Santa Claus, and no one really ever knew that, is because Tim Allen cooperated and and gave up individuals that he was doing uh, drug sales with. Um, there are two differences here. Now, White Boy Rick, uh, I, I guess you can make the case did the same things, but the FBI threw him under the bus um, to get people like Coleman Young and and other people, as you know. And I don't have to give you a a history lesson. You're the the authority on it. But I think looking at out as an outsider, someone that that knows it and understands it, um, it it's really sad to see people like Nate Kraft, who killed um, Nate Boone Kraft, who killed what what thirty. 20s of, of no, admitted, of admitted in court to killing 30 people. Yeah. And, and this is an individual that was out of prison far before, uh, you know, Johnny Curry, Johnny Curry was the same. Johnny Curry did le- Curry did 12 years. Left Curry did like 12, 13 years. Nate did 15 years. Um, Johnny never cooperated. And they were all far more criminal than, than Rick Worshi. Oh, right. There's no question that, that, uh, Rick's status on the street, uh, at that time, it, you know, gets greatly exaggerated. Um, but at the same time, he wasn't, uh, you know, I, I, this is an issue that I, that I actually am 
have have discussed quite often, and, and some of it is granular. But you know, sometimes there's just there's middle ground, and sometimes it's it's not as extreme as one side wants it to be, or as. But Scott, the media does that. The media oh, absolutely. also plays a part in this. And we see that today with, with oh, he was a vic- no, he was a vic- believe me, he was a victim of the media. There's no question about that. They fell in love with his case when he was 16, 17 years old, and they sensationalized it and went way over the top. Uh, and as a 16 and 17 year old, he ate it up and fed into it, but again, he was 16 or 17. So I mean, it's kind of hard to fault it's, someone uh, at that age to. You know, he was acting like a brat, and he would tell you he was acting like a brat. But well, I mean, again, he was 16 years old, 17 years old, living in. But even the nickname, White Boy Rick, White Boy Rick didn't give himself that nickname, right. and no one else did either. The media gave him that name, you know that. And you know, it's just it's a sad tale of of someone. And and look again, I hope he gets something out of this. Um, we have so many laws in this guy. And and look, I'm glad to see stuff like the First Step Act. I talked to a yeah. guy the other day that. It did you know he got forty years in federal prison? Did seventeen? He he got himself out through the First Step Act, and and I'm glad to see we're starting to do something. I know Oregon is you know decriminalized all drug. I mean I, I don't know if it will happen in my lifetime. I doubt that we'll ever do anything truly important to fix the the failure that the drug war is. Scott, you know better than me. And the last thing I'll say on this is every city in America right now is dealing with crime being out of control. Mm-hmm. The biggest reason for that is these. Is this idiotic drug war that we waste time with, and and people like Rick Wershey have have really been thrown under the bus because of it. And I hope he I hope he wins. I hope he gets something out of this, um, and I think he will. Let's let's move to talk a little bit about the First Step Act because um, that's back in the news this week as well in relation to a very iconic uh, organized crime figure in America. Uh, I'm talking about Larry Hoover who, other than Demetrius Big Meech Flannery, who we referenced earlier in the show, uh, uh, the leader and founder of Black Mafia Family, uh, Larry Hoover is the you know, most well-known um, African-American crime lord probably uh, in America operating right now. I don't think Big Meech is operating anymore. I, just, I shouldn't say I don't think. I know Big Meech isn't operating anymore. Um, if you believe the federal government, Larry Hoover at uh, age 70 is still calling shots for the gangster disciples uh, from the federal uh, Supermax facility in Florence, Colorado. He's been locked up since 1973, but he, according to the government, commands a group uh, while based uh, in Chicago, has membership uh, spread out across the country, uh, reaching uh, close to 30,000 people. And uh, they all look at Larry Hoover as as kind of their it's total bullshit. That's so a total t- fucking J- bullshit. Jimmy and I have had this debate uh, actually bullshit. recently. I mean, it, that is that is what the feds say. Yeah. I'm sorry, I was sorry to interrupt. But I mean, it, that's such really, an exaggeration, hyperbolic, over the top. But you're right. That is what Uncle Sam yeah. says. But there's no way that that's true. So uh, <laughs> let's just, let's just tell the let's tell the people what happened, and then we'll dissect it. And I want to uh, start with Jeff again. So. Larry Hoover uh, put in a motion to try to take advantage of the First Step Act. Uh, for people that don't know, uh, First Step Act, and I'm going <laughs> to editorialize a little bit here. Um, well, no, I'm not going to say that. Uh, but was 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 one of the very positive things that Donald Trump did while in office. Um, and in 2018, he signed into legislation the First Step Act, which is a kind of a massive campaign to – free 
uh, unviolent drug offenders from lengthy prison sentences that they got because of some of these draconian sentencing guidelines that that Jeff has has referenced. Um, and a lot of uh, Larry Hoover's main lieutenants, um, gangster disciples that were running the street for him um, in the 1980s and 90s that were doing long uh, long-term stints behind bars have trickled out because of the First Step Act in the last year or two. Um, Hoover himself put in a First Step Act motion to U.S. District Court U.S. District Court uh, Judge Harry uh, Leinenweber, um, I believe, uh, back in the winter. And this week, uh, Leinenweber denied the motion and will not uh, uh, grant him an early uh, early release based on the First Step Act. Jeff, thoughts? Yeah, I, I think the first thing, and and I think I think you guys really just said it back. I mean, the thought that to, to actually believe that Larry Hoover is still running, uh, a, a really a, a not a transnational, but a a a, a domestic a gang from the most secured prison facility, really in the world, probably is one of the most moronic things I've ever heard. I mean, truly you and I both know Scott and, and all of you guys know it is virtually impossible to even get a phone call at Florence at mm-hmm. max. It's, it's ridiculous. So, so I guess Chapo Guzman's not, so is he running his stuff too? I mean, give me a break. I mean, it, it's stupid. It's idiotic. Listen, th- this is another ridiculous sentence. I mean, the fact that Larry Hoover is in Admax, Florence, for I mean, let's just be honest. Stuff that you know, a lot of people. I mean, why, why is he at Admax? By the way, does anyone know that? I I'm not trying. I'm not trying to be combative here at all. But the reason he's in Admax is for what I just said. Now, whether or not that's true or not, we can sit here and debate. The federal government believes that yeah. he is the most sure. uh, powerful, influential African American crime lord in America. Yeah, I, and well, and again, uh, we all are just, I, th- I think in my case particularly, I'm talking by opinion. I, listen, what the government says, I think we've all over the years no, yes. believed that that's probably not true. Do I think he's running the, the Gangster Disciples? No, I do not. He's 70 years old. Um, not that that matters, but. Um, no yeah, one runs I, the Gangster Disciples. Yeah, Jimmy, <laughs> Jimmy and I were texting back and forth <laughs> about this, but kind of talk about that school of thought, which I think is very accurate in terms of. Good point. The belief that there's this. Uh, empire all interlocked uh, and everyone kind of in sync with each other, uh, moving in the same direction. When in reality, How it's would much you even more run disparate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're right. Log- even logistically, it, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, you know, uh, cast doubt on that accusation just logistically. But I don't think anyone runs the gangster disciples. I, I mean, I think Larry Hoover in, in his day was obviously a shot caller and an influential guy. And and he and he he kind of modeled his leadership role as a sort of Italian mafia, but but like of African American organized crime. But that's an outdated like like model. Like I mean, the the guys on the streets now. I mean, guys who are like under thirty, maybe even under forty, they don't give they don't give a fuck who Larry Hoover is. Guys in Chicago, even GD, even members of the Gangster Disciples, they don't care who Larry Hoover is, let alone taking orders, yeah. taking orders from him. These guys' dads never knew. <laughs> That's right, Larry Hoover. Their That's grandpas right. might have known right. Larry Hoover. Right, right. That's what it, I mean. It's the thought of like. It's a thought of like no one's still gonna do Larry Hoover's bidding. Right. I mean, he's seventy years old. Right. I mean, it's just 
It's ridiculous. Well, Kanye, it's, it's Kanye, Kanye, Kanye. Oh, you're trying to. You're saying bidding on the street. Yeah, no, I agree. But yeah. in terms of uh, mm-hmm. you know campaigning for him, uh, you know, in Washington, Kanye West has um, been someone that you know, when he's went to the White House and the Trump administration. I know that uh, a couple times he went there. He, he tried to uh, chew Trump's ear about Hoover. Obviously, didn't yeah. work with Hoover uh, in terms of commutations, but he did. Uh, Trump did let out some um, famous drug dealing figures. One of which was we're gonna let's tease another episode of ours. Uh, one of which was Harry O. Uh, Michael Harris, aka Harry O, who was the L.A. drug kingpin who financed and for a short period of time ran Death Row Records. That episode is uh, available. So as of today, our uh, interview with Ben Westoff on uh, West Coast Gangsters. Check out his book, Original Gangsters, which is uh, just an amazing um, telling of the the history of gangster rap. And yeah, By the time uh, people hear this episode, that, yeah. that will have probably been out for a few weeks. But if I can just say something else about the GDs here, um, I think at one time... You you could talk about the gangster disciples as like African American organized crime, in in a sort of similar uh, conversation as the Italian mafia, hierarchical, uh, you know, uh, shot callers, well organized. But that's not the case anymore. I mean, I think when you look at the GDs now, it's it's block by block. It's it's decentralized. I mean, they don't they don't they don't get along with each other. There's there's infuting, let alone taking orders from a guy at ultra maximum security who's seventy years old. I mean, it just uh, it it just doesn't. Just on the surface, you don't even have to be an expert, a criminologist. Here's to, what I here's what you I you know think. doubt that that charge. I, I think for the first twenty years of his incarceration in state prison in Illinois, he was running the Gates yeah. of Disciples from yeah, behind I think you bars. Can make that case. That's yeah. what he was convicted of in 1996 um, when they had – it was actually kind of a, a pretty uh, brilliant um, uh, bugging operation. They bugged the visitor badges. So his lieutenants would come in to meet with him, and they'd give him a visitor badge, and the visitor badge was a recording device. Um, so I, I do think that was happening then. But as as we've said kind of uh, pretty emphatically here, once he was put, you know, the punishment for that was going into the federal prison system and not just going into the federal prison system like, you know, a regular uh, inmate. But you, you, you're going in, uh, eventually he was put into the Supermax. I don't know if he started in the Supermax. But, uh, you know, you're talking 24-hour uh, round-the-clock surveillance. You're only let out of your cell for 45 minutes a day. You have limited contact with people in the prison, let alone people on the outside. So the no- the notion that he has any day-to-day control over the gangster disciples <laughs> right now from Supermax at 70 years old is frankly laughable. Yeah, and, and I, I would say also that... Um I mean, I, I know this is a utilitarian argument, so you know people can can have some kind of moral opposition to what I'm about to say. That that's fine. We can have that discussion. But if you want to talk about the kingpin strategy, I would say the streets of Chicago are more dangerous and worse off now that Larry Hoover's not calling the yeah. shots <laughs> because it is more decentralized and it is more like Wild West. 
and everyone everyone's carving up block by block, you know, killing. And uh, you know, I'm not saying you know let's reinstate him or something, but I'm but I'm just saying the kingpin strategy I think has all, has led to an escalation of violence in in Mexico and the United States here's, and here's, other places. Jeff, I'm interested in your take on this. I, I, here's what I think should have happened here. I think that Line and Weber should have granted him the uh, sentence reduction from his federal narcotics case, which was legitimate. And at that point, you put the question of parole and whether or not he sees freedom again in the state's hands. Because right. then he's back serving his state sentence from 1973. And then well, you can argue. only. Right. No, I'm saying. So then you could point. be like, well, you're talking about something from 1973. It's been 40, you know, uh, how are you yeah. 40, 50 years at this point? Um, and, and I think at that point, whether or not he actually sees freedom, there is a light at the end of the tunnel with this. You've just blocked now any chance that he'll ever see parole. So, you know, I think that that part is, is quite, uh, Barbaric, and there's no universal standard here either. Which I think, this, to Jeff's point about how there are people who have you know committed these ultra violent crimes who cooperate, and then and then they're out on the street. That parole board, they they've granted parole to like you know these really heinous criminals who like you know killed families during a botched armed robbery. And you know these dudes are like 70, so you can make yeah. the case they should be paroled. I'm I'm not. That's not my point. My point is like. Is what Larry Hoover did any worse than, than some 70-year-old dude who killed, like, you know, three family members in a botched armed robbery and the guy's in his 70s and now he gets parole? Worst, I mean, thing, I, worst I, thing that happened to Larry bizarre. Hoover, and I, and I say this sincerely, the worst thing that happened to Larry Hoover over the last 15 years is Rick Ross shouting him out in that song. Right. Yeah. That And look— that's a good point. I, I will say also with, with, in the case of, and look, as I'm talking about doing bidding, I'm not going to do bidding for Larry Hoover. I will say though, the fact that he's in ADX, I'll continue to say that that's cruel. I mean, is he someone that should be with the likes no. of, you know, El Tyler Chapo. Bingham and yeah. Bonnie Savage? I mean, that's a bit, I, that's a bit of a cruel and unusual punishment. They got the Jimmy Marcello there. there too, the mob boss of Chicago. Yeah. He's got no business yeah. being there. I mean, yeah, Jimmy Marcello might be a scumbag and a murderer, but and you know, he part shouldn't of, be a uh, superman. Sorry to interrupt again, but the, part of um, the judge's argument is not even that Larry Hoover – you want to get into what, what's, what's ridiculous. Not even that Larry Hoover is necessarily danger right now. He actually made the comment that this is a – this will um, – be a disincentive for future gangsters. They won't want to get into that life because look how many years Larry Hoover is doing. I mean, can you imagine a stupider with all due respect? <laughs> you think you think an 18 year old kid in Chicago about to pull the trigger is going to think, wait a minute. I just, Larry Hoover's doing 50 years. And, and, the, ju and, the, judge, and the judge on this, <laughs> and the judge on this case, Lionweber is the guy that let out all of his lieutenants. So I'm like, so you understand? So, so, if you're going to, if, if all things are equal and you're in your, why are you letting out all of his co-defendants from that same case? The, we're talking about the, uh, I think it was called Operation Headache. Uh, I could be making up what the name of the case was. I think it was Operation Headache. But whatever it was, the 94 bus that, that came down out of what he was doing in Vienna, Illinois, which was the state prison where he was holding court with his lieutenants that were driving up there every couple days. Um, all those guys, Line and Weber, let out. So it's like you're playing God. Like, it, it, hold, hold him to the same standard you're, you're holding all his co-defendants. 
And then again, then it, then it's up to the state of Illinois if the state of if the state of Illinois wants to parole him, but at least give him the opportunity to have a chance at parole at seventy years old. Seventy years old right now, and he's been in prison literally forty eight years. Don't you guys? Don't you guys think this is similar to the Skinny Joey thing that Larry Hoover is the yes the the kingpin, just like Joey, like he's he's public enemy number one in yeah. in, the, in their minds, and so there's just. It's a uh, scorched and, earth, and right? Big Meech no- is and Big Meech is experiencing the same yeah, thing. Yeah, I, I'm in some contact with him and his people, and um, he's not in Supermax, but uh, he, he's in he's in Sheraton, Oregon, and you know they they fuck with him anytime they can, every time they can, and just like what Larry Hoover's saying in terms of you know hold me to the same standard you're holding my co-defendants, you know Meech and his brother were convicted on the exact same charges. Um, and Meech's brother got a sentence reduction and walked out uh, ten years early from his from his sentence last year. He did uh, you know seventeen years of a thirty year sentence, and Meech is saying, "Well, give me the same treatment you're giving my brother." And they're saying, "No, we're going to treat you differently." Just so, one point on your Rick Ross comment. I will say this: Do I like Rick Ross's music? Of course. Yeah. I think it's truly entertainment, though. Uh, there is no person, probably in the history of rap over the last twenty years, that has taken more. And really damaged a lot of people's lives off the backs of what they did, <laughs> yeah. As opposed to what he did. I mean, he is truly uh, the the definition of infringement, copyrighted for like everything he's done from his name yep. to his stories to his music. It's it's pathetic. Talk to Rick Ross. I mean, talk to the real Rick Ross, uh, which yes. we're actually hoping uh, sooner than later we're going to uh, grab an interview with. Uh, I've spoken to him on a number of occasions off air. Uh, yes, that, that is a very sore subject with him. Um, and, uh, like you said, it's kind of the, the cornerstone of his brand and his brand is co-opting other, co-opting other people's brands and, you know, kind of developing this false narrative, um, that, uh, but, but he, but to his credit, he's done it brilliantly and has become, sure, sure. you know, has become someone that's Very probably right. trending towards being a billionaire. Uh, because because of 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 uh, of that uh, of but that, again that behavior, he, he's really the definition of fugazi. The <laughs> definition. Oh yeah, he was a he was a, a prison corrections officer. <laughs> he was no drug dealer. He was a hack. Correct. Uh, so let's. Uh, this has been awesome. Let's just uh, finish off with. Uh, I want to go into for about ten minutes, maybe. Um, you come from from the world of gambling and uh, you know making picks and and you know analyzing and reanalyzing uh, betting lines and lineups and and all the minutia of sports that make up uh, you know great handicappers and and people that that know how to uh, play the numbers and play the odds and there's been such a a growing evolution of of the sports gambling business ever since the the, the inception of the internet but it just seems to be getting bigger, bigger, and uh, faster, faster, stronger, stronger, and more embraced by mainstream media, mainstream just people in general uh, in terms of, you know, in Detroit here, uh, two of the casinos in Detroit in the last six months have opened up their own sports book now where you can just go place a a bet uh, downtown. Um, You can place a bet in in a matter of seconds on your phone. Uh, so, Jeff, coming from that world, uh, talk about being kind of the, having a, a front row seat to all this and, and, and then talk about where you think we're headed. Well, I think in the next, I don't know, 
I, I look, you know, just at like five years ago, you know, I, I, I look at where sports betting was and, and where it is now. I mean, it's pretty incredible. When I first started doing this, I mean, the only really option you had was to bet, you know, offshore, you know, with, with Bovada or, or, you know, at that point it was called Bodog. But, um, you know, you look at the evolution of it. I mean, I, I'm in a state where we were one of the first to get it really outside of New Jersey. Um, and it, interestingly enough, it's, it's put a real cramp on on the uh, the underworld and, and taking wagers and things of that nature. The good thing for them is, though, they work on credit, as you guys know. But, um, yeah, I, I think for me, though, personally, I, I it's not I don't think it's pretty particularly good for me um, just because I, I think the industry is going in a certain way. And, um, you know, the truth of the matter is it, it's hard because I'm a guy that is when it comes down to it. I, I like looking at numbers and teams and situations and is it as exciting as, as, you know, um, certain things? No. And, and I think the way I handicap it is kind of going out of style, but, um, it also has really saturated the market with a lot of, you know, just anyone can be anyone. And, and I think that really cheapens the brand and, and anyone can be a sports better nowadays, but luckily I've been doing it for a long time and I've always had kind of established name and follower base, but, uh, I'm interested to see where it goes. I mean, you're seeing states every day pop up that want to get in the game. I think obviously with all the coronavirus stuff, it, it's been made clear to states that they've got to find ways to create revenue. And whether it's marijuana or, or sports betting, it's very lucrative. You can make a ton of money, billions of dollars off sports betting. And why allow it to go offshore and not make anything off it? But, uh, you know, I think for me, I, I look at it a little differently than most. I, I spent a lot of time on it. I spent a lot of time watching things and, 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 and kind of getting in the lab. So I'll be interested in seeing where it goes. Do I think people like me will be able to survive? Probably. I always look at myself and I'll never be at this level. But if you remember at the end of Casino, uh, Lefty Rosenthal talks yep. about just you know, capping games and, and, and just doing his thing. And that's where I envision my life going. Um, you know, I, I don't know where this podcast will take me. Obviously I have some pretty cool connections with that. And it's great to talk to people like you, but at the end of the day, you know, when I'm 70, 80 years old, I think I'll be the guy at the sports book that just enjoys making money off games. And, and, and that's, that's where my life will go. So I, I used to have envisions like being famous and trying to do things, but I realized um, there are certain things that I am not, and uh, I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a fat Albanian guy, and I don't look that good, so <laughs> I don't know if I'll be able to do the media that far. But uh, yeah, it, it's a, it's an interesting business. You got presence, though, bro. I'm not I'm not just uh, saying that. Like Thank you me. present well, and you have like a certain moxie when you're breaking down picks uh, on your or at least the stuff that I've seen, you know, video wise. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I think the days of like, you gotta be Brad Pitt or you gotta be, um, you know, Tom Brokaw or something that, you know, I, well, I, you know, I, it's funny you say that real quick. I, I just want to interject one thing. I remember the first time I met Dave Portnoy. Okay. Uh, he contacted me, had me come up to New York and I remember walking off the elevator and I had a, I had a Puma tracksuit on black and white tracksuit. I had my hair spiked. I've had my hair spiked since I was three years old. I walked off the elevator and he goes, you're the guy. He goes, holy fuck. He goes, you look like a gambler. <laughs> and I, I guess for me, like I've, I guess I always have that working for me, you know, kind of the, the envisions of what a gambler is. And, and um, you know, I, that's come through just, you know, also just being able to break games down. I think that's something that a lot of people can't do. And I think you're right in, in that aspect. And there's a science to it. I mean, there's no question. Yeah. I mean, if everyone could do it, then uh, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have what is Las right. Vegas right now. Those casinos would not exist. Um, what do you think about in-game 
betting. I mean, I can see that uh, when I say sooner rather than later, I'm talking about within a year or two, if not sooner, uh, of being at a stadium watching a game. And in addition to being able to go up and grab a beer and a hot dog, I can place a bet on second half props. Yeah, I mean, you can, you can hypothetically, you can do it right now. Um, you know, I could go watch the Phillies tonight and, and, and bet, you know, inning by inning if I want. No, but can um, you do it? You couldn't no. do it in the stadium, though, like live, though, right? No, you can. You can. You mean there's a, but there's a, there's a, uh, a window? Well, there's not a, well, there's not a particular kiosk. I'm talking about on your phone. Oh, yeah. No, I know that. I know you can do it on your well, phone now. Yo, you're talking about at, like, when you go up to get a, a software. I'm saying there'd yeah, be like an actual be, book. Sure. At the oh, yeah. concession stand. Yeah, I think that's surely can see, but I think eventually you'll start seeing, um, you know, kind of how they have the lottery machines at a, at a, at a, at a corner store or something. You know, I think eventually you'll see machines where you put 50 bucks in and you can bet games. I mean, it, it, it should happen. I mean, they should be in every convenience store in the state. Um, as far as live betting for me, I've always envisioned, and, and I'm, I'm surprised no one's done this yet. You know, if you envision like an NFL network or an NBA network or an MLB network, they have a show where they have like whip around coverage where they go to each game, red zone, that sort of thing. I envision a channel like that, but strictly for gambling. So like on a college basketball Tuesday night, there are two individuals that sit in a studio and break games down and they talk about live options and they sit there and there's a guy like me that's literally just sitting there watching 20 games and I can go here and I can go here and I can go here. And I envision eventually there'll be there'll be programming like that. And as you said, I think you know eventually we'll start seeing kiosks in stadiums. I know you know the Washington Wizards and and uh, and Capitals. I believe they have uh, talks about doing that. I mean, you're starting to see um, if you go to a casino. I know when I was at Barstool, uh, we didn't have one in a casino directly, but we had. You know, there's there's books that have uh, studios right inside casinos that do content and stuff. So I, I think all that stuff will, will continue to evolve. And um, I enjoy live betting. I think when when I can really get lost in, in like certain games where the public's not necessarily paying attention, I think there's a lot of really mo- good money to be made. And I think on an NBA Tuesday or a college basketball or a college football Saturday, you can get you can have a lot of fun with wagering you know, a lot. This was awesome, man. This was, uh, you've done it all. You've said it all. This was hopefully the beginning of, uh, of, of a number of, of guest appearances by, by uh, Big Man on Campus. That's another one of your uh, aliases. Uh, so tell everyone where they can uh, find your stuff. Well, I, I will tell you this, Scott. Someday I would like to come out and see you guys sit down with you live and do this. Uh, I like to travel now and I would love to do that. Um, yeah, I would just say, check me out on Twitter at Jeff Nadu, J F F N A D U. And also at the sit down seven. Um, you know, I do a lot of my sports gambling stuff and football will be ramping up very soon. College basketball is my bread and butter, but, um, you know, check out the sit down. If you enjoy mafia history, uh, we did a show today on Tony Accardo, who I think you would agree is probably the IE outside of one or two, the most successful person in the history of the mob in this country. Uh, so yeah, check all that out. We did, uh, Cardo, Gotti, G- Giganti, Patera. We, we've also done the black mafia in Philadelphia, Kabani Savage, uh, all sorts of stuff. So I would just follow me on Twitter at Jeff Nader and you'll see all that stuff. And you guys, I want to thank you for having me on. I, I, I really look up to both of you guys and you're doing a great job. And in any way we can, 
kind of uh, work together, I'd, I'd love to do that. So I yeah, appreciate well, it. Yeah, well, you are the future and, uh, you know, guys like yourself and guys like ourselves, you know, we're, we're, we're going to be the, the people that, that take the torch from the George Anastasios and the Jerry Capaces um, of the world and, and move it forward. Um, well, and- you know, Scott, my dream is to become the next GA here in Philadelphia because GA can't survive forever. Yep. And they're going to need another person. So that's, uh, he's already been winding down, you know, God bless him. You know, he deserves it. He's yeah. getting into his seventies and, and, uh, doesn't need the day-to-day grind. Uh, he kind of works when he wants to, and that's the kind of the dream. I mean, he, he's had so much success and has built such a career for himself that, you know, if he wants to not work for a couple of days and, and spend the, spend the summer at the shore and spend the, spend the days or the weeks with his grandchildren. Like, Maybe he could take out some time and come on our podcast. Yes. No, we're, we're definitely going to have George on. <laughs> Let me throw uh, a little shade. No, George, George is, no, George is coming on, you know, he has him and, and Schwert wise to do their own thing. And, um, but we're going to have Dave and George on uh, very soon. And uh, I'll tell you one thing about Dave real quick, just to, just to wrap up D- Dave Schratwasser has done a very, and I know it's a tough job of, of reporting on some of the terrible things that are going on in this city on a daily basis. And he has the Philly prime show. I, I think it's terrific. He, he really tries to bring awareness. You know, it's sad that no one cares, but uh, Dave does a really great job with that as well. And th- those guys are both really terrific and, and what they do. And, uh, they go, they go to the source a lot of the time. Yeah. Class acts, both of them and, uh, leading the way or paving the way for guys like us. So thank you so much to Jeff Nadeau, big man on campus, the sit down, uh, on Twitter, please. Or, or also, uh, you know, anywhere where you consume podcasts, please give him a look, give him a follow, uh, good friend of the program. He'll be back. We'll be back next week. Please uh, like, follow, and subscribe to all of our social media channels, Facebook, Twitter. What else, JB? Instagram. Instagram. And we'll keep on bringing you the content that you love. we got a lot of big things that are cooking in the mix coming up uh, down the pike that we're, we're going to be excited to share with you. Only growing bigger, better, faster, stronger each day. We'll see you next week here on OG Podcast. I'm Scott Bernstein for Jimmy Bucciolato and Jeff Nadu. Out.